This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Friends, half-orcs, countrymen, lend me your pointy ears. Hey everyone, it's Adam, the voice of your friendly neighborhood robot butler. Just wanted to jump on here real quick and tell you that this is a special book report because it's coinciding with the launch of our brand new Patreon page. We've been making this show for about two years now and haven't asked for a thing, but now we're humbly asking for your help. If you enjoy Of Mice and Men and Monsters, the storyline, the cast, and this special thing we're trying to create here by combining classic literature and Dungeons and Dragons, then please go check out our Patreon page. I'll have a link in the description of this podcast, or you can simply search Of Mice and Men and Monsters on Patreon. We have a ton of exclusive rewards that we really think you'll enjoy. There's opportunities to create custom items that we'll use in-game, access to the Master Teacher's DM notes, monthly games you can play with the cast, and bonus episodes like a new post-game recap where we talk immediately following a recording to discuss what just happened in the episode, but also a longer extended version of the book reports. We didn't want to put the entire book report episodes behind a paywall because we think that's an important aspect of our show. But from now on, the free book reports will be a shortened version discussing only the book, and the usual uncut book reports with a longer discussion, behind-the-scenes info, and Q&As will now be for our patrons. So whether you fancy yourself a Frankenstein's monster, a member of Captain Ahab's crew, one of Gatsby's guests, or Robin Hood's Merry Men, there's different price tiers for whatever your heart desires, starting as low as $2 a month. There's even Faust's Deal with the Devil tier, which... Well, you're just going to have to go check out the Patreon page to see what that is. So enjoy this shortened version of the book report, and please visit our Patreon page in order to support of mice and men and monsters. It would really mean the world to all of us. Thanks! Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of The Book Report. I am Adam, joined as always with your master teacher, Caitlin. What's going on, Hello. Caitlin? Hello! I'm good. I'm a little nervous, actually, because this is the... I, this is a you got to bring I am, it tonight. I know! I, I have... This is a book that's very near and dear to my heart, and I want to do it justice. I felt so nervous coming into the adventure itself uh, that I was like, okay. And look how uh, that went. I want to cover all the bases. Ooh, thank you. Went swimmingly. So. This is going to go great too. This is a uh, a special podcast for two reasons. One, if you're listening to this, 
That means that you are a patron now. And so Mwah, I love you. and the entire cast and wants to say a big thank you. Thank you so much for supporting of Mice and Men and Monsters. We've been doing this for free for two years. We love doing it. Um, and now we just got to the point where it's like we have a good amount of listeners and a lot of support and people reaching out. Uh, looking for ways to help the show. And so we thought it was time to finally put something out there, give some people some chances for rewards like like this from behind the scenes stuff, bonus episodes, um, some merch, what have you. Um, go check out our Patreon page. We'll have a, a link below, but you've already seen it. That's why you're here. So again, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for supporting uh, this podcast and helping us make this show. We're so glad that you're all enjoying it. The second reason this episode is special it's because we are joined by the incomparable Kimmy. Wow. How's it going, Kimmy? It's going well. I'm just so like rev- like uh, reveling and being called incomparable. It's so nice. It seems fitting. I mean, come on. Oh, We're kind. so Thank glad you. that you're here. You make these uh, book reports that much more special with your uh, insights and opinions. So many uh, opinions. Exactly. I know. I want I want a Sinead O'Connor over it. Nothing compares to you. Oh my gosh, guys, I'm blushing. The viewers, the listeners can't tell though. So yeah, you were here, you were here for Oliver Twist, which was mm-hmm. the Penny story, but now you're here for The Great Gatsby because, well, we just love having you on the show, but we know that you love this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, so thanks again for hopping on. So let's go ahead and just dive right into it. Let's not delay any further. I want to know everyone, let's go around around the horn, what is your experience with the great Gatsby story by F Scott Fitzgerald, uh, your history with the book, how many times have you read it, your thoughts on it, maybe even the movies, your opinions on them. What's your history? Hot takes, hot takes. Okay. Well then what, is, what are they? Yeah. Let's hear them. Well, I'll, I'll start it off. Uh, my first experience was probably just like with you guys where it was taught to me. Uh, I think it was junior year of high school. Um, wasn't too memorable didn't really remember too much about it didn't probably read too much of the actual piece of literature and it wasn't until I myself became a high school teacher uh, and I was teaching it uh, that I re-entered into that world and actually paid attention actually read it for enjoyment uh, and started to peel back the layers of this story that now I absolutely adore teaching. So I have taught this story for 12 years now, and I have read it for a total of uh, probably 25 times, 26 times. Uh, so it, it it's safe to say I like it. I know it. <laughs> uh, but I don't get tired of it. I, I'm still, 25 times later, I'm still finding new things every time that I read it. So... I'm a fan. That's awesome. That's awesome. Kimmy? Uh, I'm like everyone else. I read this in high school, and then I reread it again in college um, in a very interesting... How do I explain this? It was a... um, Oh my gosh, I'm so tired. It was a Fitzgerald and Faulkner class and the Faulkner oh. teaching was like really dark and it was very sexual and I hated it. So the Fitzgerald was an escape for sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a very strange teacher. But I loved this book. Like 
This book is such like a perfect gateway drug to literature when you're a teenager. It's just full of ennui. It's very adolescent. I think just like in the vibes, it's all about like longing and a desire to be taken seriously. And it's all about like having beautiful things and being with beautiful people. Like these are all the things that are really attractive when you're 16, I think. So it feels very adolescent. It also is just like a beginner's course in metaphors, I think, where it's like Mm -hmm. the eyes on Mm. the wall they're like god like it's just such a great way to get like a someone like me who liked books but was still like reading anna green gables to be like look what literature can do to your brain look how it can make you feel and think about things and feel moody (laughs) which i already wanted to be doing um So I just, I love it. This book is all about like longing and longing is so like, I love Twilight. I love longing. It's so fun to read about longing and to hear people crying into shirts and not saying what they want, but you know what they want. Um, And then I really (laughs) love the Baz Luhrmann movie. It's a wild ride. And is it good? That's not what I'm here to say. I love it. I love it very much. Um, I'm also a big Carrie Mulligan fan. So when she was cast as Daisy, I was like, hell yeah. I mean, Leo DiCaprio does seem like kind of like perfect casting, too. I thought I thought mm-hmm. he, he looks the part for sure, at least. He's um, great. It was just right when he was trying to do interesting things to win Oscars. And this is like a very boring attempt at that. Him and Django was a successful attempt at that. And it wasn't isn't he like I think he's like good friends with Tobey Maguire. I think they go back. Yes. So I think them. Yeah, doing they do together go back. Was a big and Tobey Maguire himself was he. He, I can't imagine anybody else's Nick now. He's I, I really can't. He's perfect as Nick. He's perfect so it, as Nick. So it, it did really fit well. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, we, we have Leo DiCaprio in there because of who was directing and who was already starring. So mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was meant Him to be. Him and Baz Luhrmann have that history. They Romeo, do. Romeo, was it Romeo plus Juliet or whatever that's Romeo called? Romeo plus Juliet. Mm-hmm. And Jordan is played by, I'm so sorry, I don't remember her name, but she's going to be the new Princess Diana in The Crown. So yes. that's um, fun. Elizabeth Debicki, uh, I believe. Yes, Debicki, that's her name. Yes. Mm-hmm. I think she's going to be great. All, all seven feet of her. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, <laughs> Bertram I, would like her very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he would respect her height. Um, her, his equal. I I read this, yeah, also in high school. I think it's one of the books that, I, one of the few that I actually read. And I think part of it is because it is a pretty simple read. I mean, it's a pretty short book. It's it felt like no excuses not to read it. I think it might have been also one of the summer books that we were assigned. So I felt like I had time to read it and do nothing else but read this book. Um, I think all the reasons that Kimmy enjoyed it is the reasons that a 17 or however old I was boy didn't like it. Because I felt like a lot of those stories were the kind of the longing the you know you have like the Romeo and Juliet you have this you have um uh what's uh what's a uh, Heathcliff and like Catherine or whatever on the moors the Weathering Heights mm-hmm. yeah you have all that mm-hmm. kind of like again I, it's it's brilliantly written but when you're a, a a boy in high school you're just like ugh that's why I gravitated more to like Lord of the, Lord of the Flies and 1984 I liked more kind of darker psychological kind of stuff. Uh, you were all about that dystopia then. I was, and still am in, in many ways. But I remember not not disliking this book, but thinking it was fine. And I read it again about 10 years ago. I think I was trying to just like will myself into reading more, into getting into classic literature. I try, I try so hard and want so badly to love 
that era of writing of like the lost generation of like Hemingway. I want so badly to, to love Hemingway more than I probably actually do. I don't know why it just seems like a cool thing to say that you like Hemingway, but it's probably also a very cliche thing to say that you like Hemingway. But, uh, so I, I read it then, but I also read it this past week again. I read it a third time just so I can actually take part in this discussion and not just ask the questions, but could have some opinions on it. And I will give those opinions as, uh, as we dive more into the book. Um, and yeah, I, I think I, I, I want to stick there still before we go into the history, before we kind of talk about its place in culture and its significance and, and everything, I still kind of want to stick on our opinions. Just consider this, uh, just a free for all about like opinions on like your thoughts of the book as a whole. A lot of people will give this book crap because it is held up as this paragon of American literature as like the, if, if there is, uh, an American novel to read, this is oftentimes just put on a pedestal. And I think that puts a lot of people off. But I, I keep coming back to it. I, 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 I think that it is, it, it is it's a short novel, you know, nine chapters. I think it's less than 200 pages. Um, definitely less than three. And it, it is such like an it, easy to read. It goes so quickly in many areas and no word is wasted. Uh, so the I, I have not fallen in love with a book's language and style of writing like I have with Fitzgerald's Gatsby. And I'm and I'm a girl who who loves me some some Tolkien. I, I love me some romantics. I love me some you know, long, sinewy, um, vinous, just paragraphs that, you know, delve into what something feels like and looks like and tastes like to an umpteenth degree. But in this, the economy of language is, is beautiful. It still gets poetic. So I come back to it again and again as like, this is an awesome read for multiple stages of life. And, and I would say it, it's great for teenagers to read. And then it's great also to read again when you are the age of the people in the story, which is late twenties, early thirties. I think it's very fitting in that way. So I, I don't know. I, I think that that's really something I'm going to be coming back to a lot tonight is just the language and the writing uh, that Fitzgerald displays in such a short amount of pages. It's super impressive. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great example of a book that I don't really care for the story, but it's undeniably like so beautifully written. It's it's one of those books where you're you're rereading certain lines or underlining them because they're so yeah, beautifully written. It's very economic in its writing, like you were saying. There's I think I was talking to you, Kate, about how there's so many lines that He's he'll say uh, Fitzgerald will will say one thing and that one sentence will then evoke so much more in your mind about what it was, what once was, what's changing, the greater landscape of like this country. Um I remember there was a part where I think when you're you're first introduced to is it the eyes of Dr. Eckelberg? Is that what it is? Yep, Dr. TJ Eckelberg. And it talks about like just like looking over this kind of what used to be prominent, but kind of is like run down now what used to be. And you keep coming back to that. And it's just like they're driving down the road. But that one of those things just evokes so much. And so, yeah, I, I, again, don't really care so much for the story. 
but it's it's short and it never like, drags like you were saying it it everything moves 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 the next piece goes to the next piece and goes and pushes forward uh so i respect it for that it never like drags and feels like you're you're watching the same scene play out like the third or fourth time um so yeah yeah again it's I mean, i'm kind of i'm kind of in that balance of respecting it and so much and the way it's written but just not really caring for the story that it tells mm. if that makes sense yeah, I, I I teach this as in this is not a character driven story. This is this is not a plot driven story either. Um, this is really a language driven story, where kind of almost like on the way of like Marcus Aurelius's uh, meditations, where you have an author in the voice of the narrator wanting to like work through things that he's seen in the world around him from World War One to the changing landscape of consumerism in the US to how, you know, horribly we treat one another based on class, how the the government and the figures of authority that we were relying on so much had let us down. Sound familiar? Um, he was trying to like work through that and this was his way. This was almost like his his meditation on that and trying to use these characters as a bit of like personal psychotherapy but he i guess like you could say fitzgerald yeah it, it's not about the story uh in like a, an amazing action-driven plot um it's not about the characters as in like this the romance for the ages or this is the hero that we all want to become this is the paragon of of manliness or heroism or uh, what it means to be a good human being. It, it's more of a, this this world is, is changing around us and we need a way to work into that. And so this story is written for us as giving us lots of pauses and spaces to think and to feel and to, to just melt into these words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say one of the things I love about this book is it's just a vibe, which is exactly what Kate's saying. It's so environmental. Like it it there are really resonant like interesting characters, but it's not character driven. Like Nick, your narrator is super unreliable and you start realizing that pretty quickly in the book. Like you can't rely on any character in this book. They're all kind of weak in their own ways. But like there's such a feeling to it. It's such a feeling of a generation. And I think a lot of times for people this book feels cliché, but it's one of those clichés where it created the cliché, I think. Like this is a not relatable analogy at all, but I think as a contemporary person watching it happened one night it feels really cliche and you can't imagine how this won like 12 oscars and then you realize this invented the romantic comedy totally everything Mm -hmm. cliche comes from this i feel like gatsby's that way a lot for being like that classic american novel i just think the 60s took that vibe and then kind of stretched it and overdid it a little bit in Mm -hmm. how and being self-indulgent and i love this book that it is so short because Fitzgerald is like a really self-indulgent writer and he really like I don't know he just really like reined himself in and really like honed it in this book and I feel like it it's just a vibe man it's it's I get the same feeling when I look at like a colorized photo of like a street in New York with neon signs on I'm just like ooh, is it raining I love it I think it's it's hard for me and I guess if you're going to have a story be like one big metaphor or one big vibe then you better keep it pretty short. And to his, mm-hmm. I mean, his effort, he did. Uh, what I have a hard time for, and, and I think this is like such an easy cop-out to say, um, so I'm prefacing with that. Um, 
it's it's really easy to wash away a story by just saying I hate all the characters because I watch a lot of stuff where pretty much all the characters are mainly like despicable, uh, whether it's Succession or sometimes Game of Thrones, things like that, where it's like, man, I kind of like hate all of these people. Uh, I just, but for whatever reason, you have to like care about them, I feel like to a certain extent, or maybe you two are arguing, maybe you don't. These two, the all these characters are just a Petri dish or just an example of a country kind of changing and coming unglued or something like that. But it's really hard to stick with it to, to, to follow these characters when I just like, don't care about them because I just don't like any of them. I remember, I remember uh, Kate always just like not liking Nick Carraway. And I was telling her and I was like, I don't, you said that. And like, he, I think it was like three chapters in. I was like, I mean, Nick's fine. He doesn't really do anything. He's just kind of like, commenting on stuff and maybe he doesn't maybe, even do anything though that's why do he's anything. not likable well <laughs> it seems like he was just kind of caught adrift in this thing like he was just kind of brought into it and commenting on it but then he also in doing that it almost sounds like he's looking down on people and separating himself from it even though he is a part of it but then i remember as soon as i was thinking that i was like i mean he doesn't seem that bad whatever and i think it was like back to back moments where he talked about how he was cheating on his girlfriend and sending these like love signing these love letters saying like I love you still even though he was dating someone else and then I think he ended a, ended a chapter with something on, along the lines of uh, like I'm the most honest person I've ever met and like how hard that is on him to be that honest it's like okay mm-hmm. I get and it <laughs> doesn't get better for him to be so noble it's so yeah, difficult exactly. Dude. <laughs> he's got it he has it so hard you know yeah but that's interesting that you, I mean I get it when people don't like these characters but I like really care about both Gatsby and Daisy because they're two people trying to break out of this it, first if you don't like this you probably are not going to like Age of Innocence there's like a very similar vibe in a lot of ways but mm. I don't know they're just like two people who just like so desperately want to break out of the situations they were forced into by society and they make some immoral choices in the process of doing that which is a shame but like I just so appreciate their desire to be something that they were told they could couldn't be I don't know I find it like admirable even if I really hate the ways they do it I I don't know I just like care about them because of that dream because it's such a human thing to want your to forge it's such an American dream to want to forge your own path and that's the power of this book is we've been told you could do that as an American and it becomes so clear in this story that like you abs sometimes you just cannot so that's I don't know I care about Mm -hmm. them for that reason it's like the only good thing about them I, I think my favorite, I think the book became in a way less interesting me into me as, as it went on. And I think that there is some parallel at play in what Fitzgerald was probably purposely trying to like evoke that. Like I loved this story when it was all about rumors and mysteries and building up these like people and like, who are they? Oh man, I've heard he's killed a man and where did he get his money? Oh, I heard this about Gatsby or even all the characters. You, you really like them from a distance when they just, I mean, maybe not all of them, certainly not, uh, not Tom or whatever. You pretty much, uh, hate him from the very beginning, uh, his racist <laughs> ass. But, uh, the more you get to know them and kind of peel back stuff, you just kind of see the like, oh, there's not that much underneath. It seems like they, they seem very, like, where they seem very interesting characters. They seem kind of like vapid and self-obsessed and so like insecure. And so I, I agree. Yeah. The, 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 Gatsby's chase for the American dream, yeah, hating the ways he does it, 
and he's such like uh, so whiny at times that this like I thought he was like so cool and like debonair when he's like not that which again is interesting it's cool how you you set up this kind of idea and you break it down and crumble it but and I was liking Daisy for a while too I felt really bad for her at the beginning when she was you could tell she felt stuck and trapped and she was in this like basically loveless marriage with a husband that was cheating on her and having having a daughter that she wishes you know that was what was it like ignorant or something like that what, a what's beautiful the line, little Kate? fool yep yeah that's the How best that? thing a girl Such can be in this line. world yeah i feel so like bad for her but then all that's undone again at the end when it's like you chose these things you've done these horrible things you like Caitlin was telling me earlier again. I'll give you credit, Kate, uh, about how like she is like she like doesn't doesn't love. She claims to love these people, but she loves herself like the most over anyone. So mm-hmm. I don't feel that bad for her because she's made these deliberate choices. Because like you're you're, it feels like so much of this story about these like wealthy white people as this country is changing and there's like. um other ethnicities rising up and they see that as like a threat there's it's really hard to feel bad for these people because they're it seems like they're all just kind of scratching and clawing each other for like status and place and and punching down to keep where they are and that's kind of what's driving motivation for so much of this yeah it, 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 whenever i have you know when i've taught it and i have students just get you know actually have angry reactions to characters choices and you know they just get pissed off and and exclaim about it It, it's like why does that piss you off though why does daisy's decision to choose herself first and go back to a cheating husband um and ultimately let somebody else take the fall for her why does nick's uh compliance and just going along with the flow at the expense of others well-being why does uh Tom Buchanan's like prideful boasting and his showing off of his wealth and belittling others around him so that he feels like he's a bigger man. Why does Gatsby's decision to sacrifice um, really his own honesty and his own roots so that he can become what he thinks he's supposed to be to to earn a position in, in society that he never fully realizes? Why, why do all these characters' decisions piss you off? Perhaps... Is, is that like hitting a personal nerve as well? Is it possible for us to find like parts of ourselves that we don't like as well in these characters? Totally. Yeah. It's like the worst, kind of the worst of us <laughs> mm-hmm. that are led yeah. by like selfish desires and fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and at the base of it, I mean, th- this is, this is a story about class. And, and you know, at, exactly. And so those, you know, the haves and haves nots, we, we still see that struggle even today. So, yes, it was written and published in 1925. Uh, it takes place in 1922, uh, but it still is super cogent today in 2022. So it, it is very fitting, even though it's separated by a century. Mm. So I, I would say it's still super fitting for people today to read. Does anyone else kind of want to, before we go on to like the, the backing up and talking about like the significance and the cultural significance of this book, anyone else kind of want to share like a thought or an opinion or something they really like, like about this book or, or maybe even like something, a knock against it that they dislike? I would say, you know, when, when it was first released, you know, Fitzgerald already was a known name. Uh, you know, 1920s is where we really first see the the modern conception of the celebrity. 
of people who are built up to be bigger themselves of this idea of you know tabloids or names and pictures appearing in the newspaper people pretending they know big names and and, you know feeling like tied to people who they've never met in real life and then you get to actually see them you pull back the layers and realize like celebrities they're just like us they're kind of boring uh they let you down if you meet them uh Fitzgerald and and his wife Zelda they they were one of the it couples of the 1920s. I mean Fitzgerald is the one who coined the term the jazz age. Uh, they they were known and so he had written mostly it was like writing short stories for shorter periodicals and publications just easier money and he had his hand at, at other pieces of writing too. And so Gatsby is is one of those where there's a lot of personal ties to it. Uh, it's it's obviously written by someone who knows the time and place as well as the people. Uh, so it is just so spot on. Um, even when things are made up, you know, titles of books that are referenced or places or people and they're just slightly changed so that those reading it in 1925 will know exactly who he's talking about, um, where he's talking about. It, it is It is so spot on that you cannot help but read and know Fitzgerald into it. And yet, he did receive criticism when it came out. He, you know, this is actually much better chronicled than, than I have done for earlier works, probably because this is, you know, I'm talking about 1925 versus like 1825. Um, but, you know, like some initial criticism that it got that I still think has some relevance, you know, critics said that, um, they didn't like the silence at the heart of the relationship between Gatsby and Daisy. Like, it's not said for sure whether or not they loved each other or not. That's a lot of that's left up to us. Um, Gatsby's an enigmatic character. You know, we don't really get to know, you know, we're held at arm's length most of the time. And so we can't really feel for him as much. We can't really get to know him as much. Uh, a lot of people had a problem with the brevity of the novel. They, you know, they they wanted to know more. They thought that some details were lacking, even though I think that that is a strength of it now. Uh, a lot of people made fun of the title. Even Fitzgerald himself thought it was so-so. Um, you know, the great Gatsby, because he, he himself, you know, personally didn't think the character of Gatsby was a great man. It's just taken from a line that Nick, uh, Nick says around the time of Gatsby's funeral. And then, of course, it, the last one, which I think is is true, truly fitting. Um, it was it was called like too masculine, too muscular. Uh, it wasn't appealing to uh, female readers. That it, it really wasn't friendly to women. That it was really just the point of view of of men reading. It's something called hard boiled. You know, more of a a, a macho machismo uh, look on it and those that showed any kind of weakness or sentimentality or emotion uh, are given a hard time in the novel so I, I see that as as yeah that criticism does hold um, it doesn't break it all apart but it is you know even for somebody who absolutely loves this novel it's also appropriate for me to throw that in there that the critics of that time did have some points yeah, I, th- I think one of my favorite aspects of the book that I think is really interesting that I haven't seen that much uh, is um, having the narrator of Nick Carraway not be the protagonist in a way. 
you're following this, as Kimmy put, like an unreliable narrator who is kept at arm's reach from so many events. So he's telling what he thinks he sees and what he wonder uh, what he wonders is is true or not. It's a really interesting kind of distance to be kept at, and it makes all the sense in the world if you talk about like oh celebrities and how we look at them from a distance and we build up so much or break so much down in our minds and fill in the gaps um, in probably fantastical ways. Can you, uh, do either of you know other example? And what's the term for that, Kate, that you said that is when it's like you're. Oh, when, when you're, when your narrator is not the main character, uh, yeah. we, we can call that a deuteragonist. A deuteragonist. Have, do you mm-hmm. know any other books that em, uh, employ that same kind of writing technique? I mean, Sherlock Holmes is a famous one. You know, Watson. Oh, because is, is what, the one. was that Watson yeah. who's writing it from? Yeah, it? Oh, Watson I forgot is about the that. one telling yeah. us. It's slightly different um, because Watson isn't trying to only focus on, like, Sherlock Holmes is not the point of the Sherlock Holmes stories. It's more the cases. Uh, whereas what is, you know, you can say this is an extraordinary advance that Fitzgerald made through Gatsby is that, yeah, he made the decision. I'm going to have a main character, Jay Gatsby, and I'm going to have his story told, but it's going to be told from the outside by an observant narrator. So it's it's not going to be, you know, it's going to be about Gatsby, but not by him. But yeah, we, we have had examples of Deuteragonists exist before now, and yeah, Holmes is the first one I can think of. I think, Lem- would Lemony Snicket, would uh, Sears Unfortunate Events count as one as well? Yes. It's my favorite. Uh, or whatever the word she said is. Deuteragonist. I tried Googling examples of it, and I don't know any of these books. I don't even know if this list is accurate, because it's saying Harry Potter, but Harry Potter narrates it, and he's the protagonist. Well, it's just like the third omniscient third person. Yeah, that, yeah, that wouldn't that was... quite be it. No. I don't like that Damn list. you, Google. You failed me. Okay. <laughs> um, well, hey, y'all put some good examples out of, your, out of your butt, so hey, kudos to you, well-read people. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Friends, half-orcs, countrymen, lend me your pointy ears. Hey guys, it's me, Kate, the master teacher, and I'm here at the break in really what is not normal for a book report. Usually we just blaze right on through, but I wanted to hop on real quick to say, first of all, thank you so much for listening. We are so happy you're here. We love you guys so much. And if you get the chance, we would invite you to leave us a rating and review. Wherever you're listening to podcasts, just hop on, click as many stars as you'd like, maybe drop a few lines saying what you enjoy about the show, and carry on with the rest of your day. Uh, And as Adam mentioned at the very beginning, uh, we would love for you to check out our Patreon. We hope to see you there. There's a lot of really cool things that we're including in each of the levels, so go check it out when you can. The second reason I wanted to come on at the break is to tell you about a really cool new show. Uh, It's called The Gorgon Show. So everyone else has a podcast. Why shouldn't monsters, right? And so their show is run by 
a Gorgon. Her name is Penny Cephalonia. Yes, we have our Penny here, and, and this Penny is just as sassy, but she interviews monsters, cryptids, and the occasional human on her Gorgon show. It features talking head snakes, Sybil the Oracle in her wackadoodle horoscope segment, and talented voice actors performing as a variety of creatures. So it, it's an improv comedy uh, uh, podcast, and it's very fun listening as a human, and I'm sure monsters as they listen. So guests include well-known creatures like Pegasus, but many of them are more obscure cryptids and mythological creatures. So that includes like a Taraxippus or a horse disturber in the pilot, uh, Skogsgra, a Swedish forest creature who turns men into introverts, and the Ozark Howler. So if you know what those are, you are already cool in my book. And if you don't, then you get to find out. So the general format is an intro featuring Penny and her head snakes, an ad for totally real companies such as Sasquatch Socks for feet of all sizes, the interview with the guests, and finally the horoscope segment. And that horoscope segment, it features Penny's roommate, Sybil, an insensitive oracle who describes her bizarre God's given visions for each astrological sign. So stay tuned at the very end of our book report so that you can hear a trailer. And really, if this sounds cool to you, you can learn about life as a monster in a human world with Penny and her snakes with The Gorgon Show, wherever you listen to podcasts. So that's enough about me. Let's get back to the show, shall we? Going on and kind of already, you were already kind of going there a little bit. So setting you free to go nuts about the background, (laughs) the history of F. Scott Fitzgerald writing this book and its significance. Here's where I set you go and and put the the master teacher hat on you. Okay, I'm I'll pace myself. So, uh, all right, calm you down. Know. You're as bad. You're probably so <laughs> excited. Bit, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know. It's it. like I teach this book. You know, I I have like how do I condense it into uh, just tonight without boring your your asses off and sounding like I'm just all lecturing. of your students are going to listen to this and just uh, <laughs> and Shake just regurgitate this. Yeah. <laughs> like, all right, all right, calm down. So anyways, yeah, please stop me and, and jump in any time. Uh, it, it would be remiss to say if, you know, back up a bit and say like, yes, you, you mentioned this. Uh, we have following World War One a, a collection of uh, younger people, uh, especially those who went into the arts, who were writers, who were painters, who were, um, you know, lyricists who you know were musicians and we can call them the lost generation but this came out of seeing this war called at that time the great war um, where it was sold to people that you know it's so fitting and proper to die for your country that they're you know this is this is a noble cause uh this is good versus evil and yet those who went to this war saw for the first time you know atrocious chemical warfare they saw people being gunned down they you know there's no noble like looking your enemy in the eye and fighting them hand-to-hand combat in a very romantic way you're hiding in hovels in the dirt and you know dying from not just bullets being sprayed on you but even sometimes just because you're not being cared for by your own side and then you're told to go sacrifice yourself and if you don't then your own general will order that you are killed on your side so they came out of World War I uh, just completely jaded with their governments, uh, with you know, their, their parents and, and the older generation, um, with the powers that be. And so many of them, especially in America, were like, <laughs> F this, we're out. And so they left. Um, most of them kind of were around this area in France and Marseille. And 
they just wrote through this new lens of the world around them a little bit nihilistic a little bit so what who cares a little bit it's all for nothing um and trying to use their artistic references and and their scope of understanding the world to then work through some PTSD to work through depression to work through anxiety that came out of either fighting directly in the war or still being attempted uh still being uh directly involved through just the fact that it was a total war so even on the home front you know people went through some serious shit uh so Fitzgerald is one of those he's you know a writer who's in this group um you know with John Dos Passos with Hemingway with Gertrude Stein with so many others who worked together and were just in this beautiful moment of art and relating their ideas with one another so you have somebody who is seeing how his government has failed him. You have somebody who was born in the Midwest to nothing and was trying to work his way up, saw the cost of materialism and wealth, still pursued that um, through his career, wanted to you know, live a flashy lifestyle, live among the wealthy and famous, and ultimately <laughs> drank himself to death and... It does not end well. Um, so he he is writing Gatsby to work through things he's seen as just this like complete failure of the American dream. And so this is what you get kind of like as the background and the setting for this context of writing uh, The Great Gatsby. Uh, I didn't know if if you wanted to add anything to that before I go on. But yeah, that's kind of like our historical context, right? <laughs> World War One. <I. laughs> uh, but it, it's... You know, I've seen is, I've seen about- midnight I've seen midnight in Paris. Yes, I, I follow. Oh, I I love midnight in Paris. Uh, yes, they do a very good job of having these spot on parodies. Hiddleston is the such lost a generation. good Fitzgerald in that. Yes, uh, but you know I, I love it because we we Americans we still see that we want to believe that material excess you know is excused by very hard work that somehow the rich deserve their wealth. Uh, you know, you still see this today, right? I built myself up. Uh, I built my own wealth. I, I earned right. this myself. And so the fact that I have a multi-million dollar company, the fact that I spend this much money, the fact that I like just have this much personal wealth, I deserve it. Um, I, I got it because I the American dream worked for me and I got the American dream because I worked hard. And so... This- well, and so much of that also is like, you once you get it, God forbid you lose it, and then you're terrified of that, and so you keep other people maybe mm-hmm. down. Um, there's so much of that kind of, and especially with other like races, you know, reading books about like, oh, you know, uh, black people or whatever are coming up. We can't we can't have mixed marriages or whatever. So much of that kind of like, oh god, like Tom Buchanan thing. in chapter yeah, Tom, one, exactly. Yeah. Like very at the beginning, you're like, oh man. So this is what they're talking about: these wealthy people mm-hmm. and what they're and you and you get to see what they're afraid of, of possibly losing their status yeah. or this idea of what they think, think America is and what they're owed. Yeah. So it's interesting because the novel kind of like sits in that in-between space where it affirms that idea. You know, we see, uh, we see Gatsby or Jimmy Gats. Um, when he's young, he has this self-improvement list of all the things he's going to change about himself and improve about himself to get to the top. Um, and the fact that this is, 
you know, we, we see that he does get to the top, although through dishonest means, we're seeing that that's like a naive belief and yet it does succeed. So it's like we, you can work yourself up through this idea of the American dream, but at what cost, Mm -hmm. you know, it, at what cost to yourself, at what cost to your identity and who you are and who you held on to, is it really worth it? So, yeah, I I would say like that, that's like kind of like the big ideology of it. And it, it is it's it's taught usually to juniors in high school so you know 16 17 years old uh which actually is a very fitting age to to teach it um although i don't know if it's a fitting age to really appreciate it but i get why it's at that age because when you see flashbacks of jay gatsby he is 16, 17 years old, and he kind of never changes from that naive point of view. He still is that impressionable and that, you know, holding on to an incomplete understanding of success and uh, a very, I guess, shallow understanding of the world. Uh, and we, we still see that in him, you know, when he's twice that age, when he's like, I think he's 33 at the very end. Uh, and so... I would also say then that it really culminates if you read this later on in your late 20s, early 30s, when you're the age of the characters during the actual plot of the story, there's a lot that you feel, you know, this kind of what, what am I working toward? You know, what, to what extent am I supposed to be a cog in the wheel? To what extent am I supposed to be working towards personal wealth? To what extent is my government actually doing anything why you know why are we still having these problems why is there such disparities and inequalities in race in class in gender and it it all pops up in this book um and then it's very easy then to understand this almost nihilistic nothing matters uh point of view that a lot of the characters and therefore a lot of the lost generation gave into and so it all culminates in that final line which I made sure to have, you know, how how your adventure in Omamam ends, um, you know, changing a few words here and there so that it actually fit what Penny, Awen, and Bertram are doing. Uh, but that very end, you know, so we beat on boats against the current born back ceaselessly into the past. You can read it both ways. You can read it as in things are shitty and it's almost like you are going upstream. You're fighting against the current and you're finding that good fight and you don't end tomorrow's a new day and you keep going but you can also read it at the same way of like we keep going and it's still going to happen and history is going to keep repeating itself what's the point i guess we just float on so it's it's kind of that like do you struggle or do you give in do you struggle or do you give in and you see that back and forth with a lot of the characters in this book and i feel that in my own life right now do so I push that, against, uh, you know, a lot of the problems I see right now, or do I just give in because it, I'm so tired emotionally and psychologically? It, it sounds like you were saying that 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 ambivalence, uh, choose your own adventure, read this how you will, interpret it how you will. That was looked down as like a negative when when it first came out. Did people kind of didn't like the ambivalence, or they didn't like the they they didn't like they didn't like the ambivalence in the relationship between Daisy and Gatsby, because it is it is one of those where you beg the question: Did Gatsby actually love Daisy, 
Or did he love the idea of Daisy and what she represented? Did Daisy actually love Gatsby or did she just want a way out of the horrible life she had and she really just wanted to be worshipped? But that just sounds like one of the many kind of purposeful gaps that are left there. Again, mm-hmm. why you have Nick, this deuteragonist or, deuteragonist or whatever you called it. It's yeah. kind of why you have that because it fits perfectly for this story of there are the gaps I, there. I personally, yeah, I love that. It's just a lot of people crave concrete. Uh, yeah. A lot of people crave closure. And so they almost want that black and white reading of it of like, is this a romance? Is this just tell you know, me is what this it right means. or wrong? Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell no, me how to feel. People want that. Yeah. That's what's so interesting about the movie. I feel like the Boz Lerman movie where it really fails for me is that it, it, it does recognize there's so much ambiguity in The Great Gatsby where it just answers it for you over and over again. Like they put the context that which I'm, I remember being annoyed because I wrote my paper in college saying like this felt like a therapist appointment for Nick Carraway as he was working through the trauma of this mm-hmm. event. Like he felt like he was talking to a therapist and they have Nick in a sanitarium at the beginning of the film mm-hmm. talking with a psychiatrist about what had just happened to him. So like they take everything that you're, you kind of are pulling and interpreting out of the book, which maybe is a bit ambiguous at times. And But the Baz Luhrmann movie just tells you. And I found it doesn't actually make it better. If anything, it makes the story flatter. I don't. It's very interesting. It was just funny. They were trying to solve this problem. This book gets critiqued for, and I don't think it fixes it. I think it makes it worse. Other mm-hmm. people may disagree, but I think it's. I think it's interesting to see what they saw as a problem and did it actually help it? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think. Yeah. I think stories that have like are that are open ending. I think it can be a trap to say like hey, you don't know the answer. That's the point. Like, it could, that could be a cop-out. But I think when it's done well, um, it can really add to it. And it leaves it leaves gaps for us to feel something and to, like, have our own thoughts and emotions rush into those things before you beat me over the head and tell me how I'm supposed to feel. It, it reminds me of, um, again, connecting it to what I know with film. Uh, when I first watched uh, Stanley Kubrick's one of my favorite directors, and his films are kind of known for having like kind of ambiguous. I think I've been saying ambivalent. I'm not, I, I think I meant amb- ambiguous this entire time. Anyways, um, oh, okay. <laughs> where you don't, where you don't kind of know that you that you're kind of left with those gaps of not really knowing what the what the real meaning is. Uh, and I know like in 2001, A Space Odyssey, some people kind of roll their eyes at the ending. They don't know what it means. Do you just want to like, what does it mean? Tell me how to feel. Tell me what this means. Uh, and maybe part of that is a fear of like feeling stupid or just wanting to know. Uh, but I know Stanley Kubrick famously like would not tell people what it meant because he was like, it's supposed to be open ended. The moment that if you feel something and then I tell you, no, you're wrong. It meant this. Then you're just negating how someone like interpreted something, how someone felt, which is what good art should do. It should provoke like an emotion or a feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. And the moment you tell someone how to feel, you're kind of robbed of getting there yourself or God forbid you like even at that last line you said there's multiple ways maybe to perceive that and if you just tell someone like this is what it is it yeah it does kind of strip it of that kind of magic I guess for I don't know if that's cheesy but yeah no, yeah, I it, it, and I think like why can't it not why why can something not have multiple meanings you know we 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 f- we are complex beings. We can feel more than one thing at the same time. We can think more than one thing at the same time. So why can 
why can't words in a story also carry multiple meanings behind it as even if they're conflicting? Can I make, this might not be the moment you can tell me, uh, can I make a recommendation of a film for people if they find these ideas interesting? Hell yes. Yeah. Go for it. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Have either of you ever seen The Crowd by King Vidor? No. The Crowd. No, I'm the looking crowd. It up right now. It's from 1928. It's by King Vidor, which is such a 1920s name. Um, and it's this. It, it just hits a lot of these themes in a in a different way. But it's the same feeling. It's this young man working in a company, and you see him in like it's this really beautiful visual thing where you see him in like a like an office building where there's like hundreds of workers at tiny desk typing, and he's like a really excited young man. He's very Gatsby-esque, big dreams. He's gonna make it in the big city, and then I. Feel forget the inciting action but basically something makes it so he loses that job or like misses an opportunity at that job and then his whole life starts spiraling and it's a lot about that sense of like powerlessness and that oh I'm just a part of the crowd I uh, there's nothing I can actually do this is a system set to make me fail and it's this really incredible film and what I recommend is watching it and then reading about the story of the actor because it also mm. is very Gatsby-esque where this actor had this movie and this was a huge huge hit in 1928 and he started struggling with alcoholism and he basically spiraled to when like five years after the crowd came out he was panhandling because he couldn't keep work because he was oh, having wow. such a bad time and the really sad part is King Vidor wrote another movie supposed to be a big movie and wanted to hire John Murray and came to Murray found him unhealthy and panhandling said like look man come with me I'm gonna get you a job you're gonna star in my movie and Murray was like, you can't tell me what to do. You can't pity me. I'm get out of here. You know where to take your role. And ended up, mm. he ended up dying uh, not too soon after. Like, it's this really in like interesting story about this era and about mm. the sort of hopelessness and sort of self-destruction that I think we see in these stories over and over again. So if you like The Great Gatsby, definitely check out The Crowd. It's really powerful. Also, one of the first movies to show a toilet, which oh. uh, MGM tried really hard to get taken out and Vidor, King Vidor fought for it really hard. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the censors did not like toilets for some reason. I guess it was unproper. They hadn't read Everybody Poops yet, you know? I guess they not. Thanks for the thanks for the movie recommendation. Life. Yeah, I haven't, mm -hmm. it yeah, it's cool. It's cool. Uh, like in everything, everything in context. So it would make sense if it has a lot of Gatsby esque kind of like themes. If this came, if that movie came out three years after that book, I mean, maybe Caitlin will get to it. But was the Great Gatsby an immediate success? Sounds like he was already a big name when it came out. Was the book, uh, in spite of its like knocks, was it like a big hit? Yeah, it it did. It 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 got overall a really good commercial release where he did make money off of it. Uh it was one of those where on the academic side it was kind of snubbed. So it it was almost treated as if it was a like a blockbuster popcorn summer movie. Uh, and not really a piece of art uh, to be studied. And it wasn't until it didn't really like reach the level where we know it until like like 1970s, I want to say, where it had this resurgence in academic circles where a collection of uh, prof like professors started really like delving into it and writing papers on it and lecturing on it. And then it picked up speed and became now just this idea of the American novel to read and study. Uh, so 
it, it went through this just like highs and lows in such a way that it, it's fantastic to look at. So when Fitzgerald died, it was known, but it was not respected. I guess that's mm. the, the main way to look at it. Uh, so it, it, yeah, it, most of his uh, notoriety and his success as an author is postmortem. You know, a, a lot like Herman Melville and a lot like Emily Dickinson, for example. So it, it, this is kind of a tale as old as time with some of the classics. Right? It's only after they kick the bucket that people are like, hey, what they made actually has some merit to it. Let's take another look at it. Yeah, I mean, like, like Van Gogh. Yeah, the story mm-hmm. is uh, as old as time. Uh, yeah. I know we went off on some tangents, Kate, but was there anything else before we move on, like history wise that you want to hit on about the book and uh, when it was made? No, I have nothing else to add to the history here. I mean, I could do a lecture, but I, I think like for what we're aiming to get through tonight for our book right. report. I'm yeah. Gotcha. Well, then going off into like then like the the last part. And I know we've been hitting on it uh, already a little bit, but like it's like larger significance, why it stood the test of time. Uh, and why people should read it, if you think they should. I'm pretty sure that uh, the three of us here, even even I would definitely recommend people read it. Um, yeah, why has it stood the test of time? Why is it taught in high schools? I mean, we all re- read it. I'm sure everyone who's listening to it was assigned it, at least in American schools. What uh, What about it has stood the test of time? Okay, well, first... I asked you a lot of questions there. My, my, my mistake. <laughs> it's okay. First, uh, so I, I mentioned this earlier, right? It's not so much the plot that makes the book great, but the way it's told, you know, that incredible language. You know, Fitzgerald language, it, it's filtered through Nick's voice. Uh, and it's above all else what what makes this so extraordinary. Um, I've, I've been reading uh, a friend of ours, you know, heard what we were doing and she lent me her book from college, but it's called So We Read On by Maureen Corrigan. And it's basically like a book about why Great Gatsby is so great. And of course, reading that is like preaching to the choir. But uh, I saw this one part in there that she wrote, Fitzgerald undermines the coarse materiality of rich, careless people like Tom and Daisy in a detached poetic style that elevates but doesn't obliterate ordinary American language. So in other words, Fitzgerald makes like almost every word count. It's sentence after sentence that's packed with intricate meditations and callbacks and mirrored images. So that leads me to like number two, why this book rocks and you should read it. It's page for page. It's it's elaborately patterned. It goes down so smoothly that like many readers, like my students included, they don't catch on that this this novel is like wildly over-designed. I cannot express enough how many drafts Fitzgerald went through. He would have been one of those um, directors that just like stops and like looks into the minutia of every shot. But he he would go and change, you know, they are to there. He would um, go and change the appearance of a character because later on he figured out like that he wanted it to mirror another, you know, party scene later on. So it, it this this novel almost becomes like a um, a diptych, like a two-sided, I guess, board where the, you know, the front end mirrors the back end. And so you see a lot of scenes that are callbacks, a lot of images, a lot of names, a lot of lines that are hearkening and echoing back to things that happened earlier. But it's, it's not like shoved in your face. It's like 
oh wait this sounds familiar why and it's going back like oh right like um for example like images of unrequited love in this you know speaking to the 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 younger teenage twilight loving audience by the way if you like twilight you actually just might like Great Gatsby. There's, That's the most. Actually, that is the most teacher <laughs> thing you've ever everybody. said. <laughs> but anyways, we, we, like um, for example, like he he repeats this image of like reaching. Like you could say one of one of the you know well known symbols of this is like the green light, right? The green light is a symbol, but it's actually it's the hands reaching towards the green light, and you see hands reaching towards different lights and and not only are they reaching toward it they are trembling um and you so you see this repeated over and over again um you see uh wilson clutching for myrtle which is mirrored by myrtle clutching for tom you see tom possessively reaching for daisy and then daisy actually reaches for no one eventually um not even like her own daughter (laughs) Uh, really, she's like the perfect narcissistic femme fatale. Um, but she, it, everybody's reaching for something or someone. Like everybody, even if it's just a reflection of themselves. <laughs> it's it's fascinating how you see just one single gesture and image repeated so much that, and, and it's never saying they reached for this because, or this stands for this. It's just sprinkled in there at the right time so that it, opens up for you and it blossoms into this understanding of this is unrequited passion this is unrequited um love this is this is unrequited uh fervent obsession or or praise or worship for something um okay so that that's you know (laughs) okay (laughs) i got i got four reasons why this is awesome okay all right four reasons four biggies Uh, so three um this is one if we're talking about just like how this is like a, a an ultimate american novel um i would say like this is one of the only canonical american novels and i'm counting like moby dick huckleberry finn invisible man beloved to kill a mockingbird you know all those like this is you know this mm-hmm. is if you want to know about america read this book but this is like only one of those that foregrounds class instead of something else typically it will look at like class through the lens of race or through the lens of sex through the lens of um i you know i've seen it in in age i've seen it through the lens of war but here's like this is all about class and all the things that that go with it um unfortunately oftentimes when it's taught in the classroom it's like kind of like how race was taught for so often where it's like race is an obstacle we've overcome it um you know racial injustice isn't a really a big thing anymore and you see that even now where it's like gatsby is about class but we don't have this problem anymore you guys Mm. it's like no this this is truly still an issue uh this is tied to the american experience of class inequality tied to so many other i guess identities within society that are usually brushed aside or held down um and it and it unequivocally talks about it but through the lens of rich white people and seeing like how broken it is at the top and how how they will go to great lengths to hold each other down as daisy says kind of like ironically in the very beginning we've got to beat them down um so it's it's really it's fascinating to see a book on class in such a way. Um, and then the last one, right? Just my last reason is just like, if anything, how it just culminates together. It like 
builds to it, it builds to not a great moment of action not like a, a scene where all the shit goes down and somebody dies or somebody makes out or you know like they're in the rain it's it's not about that it all culminates actually into one of the best written monologues i've seen um on the final page of the novel, you know, Nick visits Gatsby's. He calls it this huge, incoherent failure of a house, which, <laughs> hmm, I wonder what other houses might be seen as failing right now. Um, but this is like the night before he decides to like leave and return to where um, he grew up in the Midwest. But Nick tells us that um, he sees like a graffiti artist has been at work. The quote is, on the white steps, an obscene word scrawled by some boy with a piece of brick stood out clearly in the moonlight, and I erased it, drawing my shoe raspingly along the stone. Um, and you see that, like, Nick almost does that as his job as a narrator. He cleans up these blots on, definitely his name is an unreliable narrator, but on, on Gatsby's name as well. Um, and I really see that as a connection of like what we even do try to do with our own histories. We we look at America and we we look at where we grew up. I know we don't only have an American audience, but you know we're talking about an American novel. But we look at our own history and we see how screwed up it is, and we try to clean it up and share that as the mythos of where we are. And it unerringly doesn't fit. It's 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 like it's just doesn't blot out and this book doesn't actually try to do that it's like with every effort that Nick as the narrator tries to kind of smooth things over or to lie outright or to paint something in a different color he's actually drawing attention to us of like what's wrong what what we what we should feel uneasy about and I respect that it's pretty unflinching in its portrayal uh like I said, no one looks good in this, uh, mm-hmm. and that is with a purpose. Okay, so Kate gave us four strong reasons. Kimmy, I don't know if you have four reasons yourself, but oh, I don't have four reasons. What do you? What I, would you recommend? Would you recommend this book? And if so, or if not, why? I would just say that I think it would be very easy for someone to be like, "Why should I care about this book? It's about a bunch of privileged white people." And honestly, fair. Hear you. There are a lot of other books you can read, but I also think this book kind of agrees with you, and that's why you should probably read it. Is it's like, yeah, look how all these things that are held up regularly by society is great. They're actually not. It's actually really flawed and really self like self propulsive, and empty like so empty no one is happy at the end of this no one is fulfilled none of this was worth it everything Gatsby fights for it basically was just like dust in the wind right to quote um Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure so (laughs) I just think this is like what Kate said oh this is so relatable to right now and even if these people feel like their experience is very different than yours I think what they're wanting and what they're fighting for I think everyone wants this I think everyone is fighting to get to a better place even if it's with good means and even if it's a good heart we all are trying to improve ourselves to get ourselves somewhere and the truth is there's always some amount of sacrifice in that and I think in the same way that Marx is a really healthy meter to capitalism to say like hey here's all these things that doesn't work about capitalism keep this in mind Gatsby is a really good meter for like our desires to like be successful mm. and be ambitious. I think it's healthy to have these ideas in mind. Like, is this worth it? Am are these means reasonable for what do I want to achieve? Will this bring me happiness? I just think it encourages its reader 
to ask these mm. things. And those are, particularly as a young person, super healthy questions to ask and to keep in mind. So I love this book. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's great. You, you uh, accidentally hit on one of the two things that I was going to mention about like possible knocks currently against this book that I hear uh, from friends or you, if you see online where it's one, it's like, oh, goody, the world needs another book about rich white people. But I think we've discussed about, I mean, which again, fair, uh, more than fair. But I, I think that you two have uh, kind of hit on why it's almost like a deconstruction of that and a commentary on that itself uh, showing the underbelly of that and the problems with that. Uh, the second one, and Kate was kind of hitting on a little earlier. Um, I hear so many comments about, and I think there's like, there's like memes and jokes about it online about English teachers, especially with like, Oh, the green light represents blah, 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 blah. I feel there's so much, uh, people will comment and sometimes get angry about books like this, where it's like, sometimes a thing is just a thing. Sometimes it's just a thing. But you hit on, but, but sometimes it's not, sometimes writers are very purposeful in their writing and they're trying to get as much as they can. And you've already hit on so much about how Fitzgerald would go over and meticulously make changes and try and, and, uh, jam pack so much into so little. So how would you respond to that, Kate? And maybe how do you respond to that? If you hear that from your students about, Maybe it's just a thing. Maybe it's just a <laughs> yeah. green thing. Maybe it's just a, a color or maybe whatever, whatever, whatever. Uh, maybe it's just a sled and Rosebud doesn't, isn't that big of a deal. Um, you know, you hear that so many times. What, what do you say to that as a teacher? Yes, teachers are, can be very guilty in that area. I usually tell my students, go with the rule of three especially with a novel as small as Gatsby. You know, the first time you see an image, say the first time you see the green light, you're like, great, it's there. Don't need to read into it. Second time you see it, it's like, okay, I'm starting to pay attention, but maybe he just likes the green light. But once you get to the third time, this is a professional writer. This is an author knowing I only have this much space and I'm trying to tell a story. When you get to that third time of the same image, the same catchphrase, the same character's appearance being called out, you, my friend, perhaps have a symbol or a motif that is leading in. So your job is to pay attention now. Your job isn't to, oh, three times. All right, I got to figure out what that means. No, now it's just like, all right, I'll go back. Is there any connection between these three? Uh, am I going to see it again? And so it's almost like you now have that cognitive awareness uh, that you are now looking for it as you go and you start to notice things that otherwise if you were just kind of reading along trying to get through and really wouldn't pay attention to it you would you would totally miss out on so that that's what I typically go like rule of three if you if you see the same thing three times if you hear the same thing three times even in a film or a song perhaps just perhaps the writer or director mm -hmm or, you know, lyricist wanted you to pay attention to that for a deeper reason. I think the rule of three is such a great, that's, that's a great uh, answer. Is such, is, uh, the rule of three is such a great um, signpost pointing you to, like, pay attention to something. Uh, I, think, I think where people get tripped up or maybe when they go too far is when it's like, 
oh, they mentioned like the green grass on the lawn and green is the color of money, uh, losing money. That's when it's like, okay, now you're reaching. It was just a, a fleeting sentence that was never brought up again and never paid off or anything. But the rule of three kind of like negates that because it's brought up time and time again uh, and with reasons what, and each of those times you, you mentioned like when they come up, what is it saying? What is it pointing to? It just kind of builds up more engaged readers. Uh, and I, I like writers like that who, when they do it well, prefacing with that, it makes it such a rewarding experience and it makes you want to go back and read it again, which is why you, Kate, having read it 20, 30 times, can still get enjoyment of it because you're picking up things and nuance that Fitzgerald was able to put in there. Yeah. And why? Yeah. So well, my, my most recent reading of it, you know, one thing that's mentioned throughout this entire novel is, is water, you know, just in, in the wording that he chooses and the images, it's just waters all throughout here. Um, and it was, it's the scene where Gatsby finally meets back up with Daisy, you know, when they meet up at, at Nick's house and, you know, Daisy finally shows up late because things are just so late. Time is running out. Uh, and he's gone and we hear a knock at the front door and Nick goes to the front door and opens it. And you see just Gatsby drenched in the rain. And, you know, kind of like you could, when you first look at it, it, it looks funny. You know, especially if you're looking at it from the Baz Luhrmann film, you know, it's kind of like a, oh, kind of a lighthearted moment. But then when you know the story, though, you realize like, well, crap. Yeah, he's following the siren call of Daisy. And here he is. This is foreshadowing his death, my friend. Like he is drenched in water just as how he's going to end. And this is the beginning of the end. So it, it's it's cool. Like you, you because you know what to look for, because it shows itself again and again and again. And Fitzgerald so painstakingly designed it that way uh, that you get to find new little tidbits that connect to one another until you look like <laughs> until you look like a Charlie and it's always sunny like in the mail room like with string connecting everything Pepe Silva, Pepe yeah. Silva. Pepe Silva. yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man that that's oh. my mind when i read stories i love it's like just You're con- you have the red you have the red wires anymore. you have the red yeah. wires connecting everything Pepe Silva green light water Okay, perfect. So, uh, and lastly for me, even like, even though I don't love the story, it's undeniable that this book is beautiful and brilliantly written. So thumbs up for me, especially because it's a short read. I read it this, I did an audiobook of it this week and I did it in about three sittings uh, on a walk. It's, it's, uh, do yourself a favor, read it. It's great. Or listen to it on a walk or in the shower. Yes. Thanks everyone for listening. As a reminder, please go check out our Patreon page by clicking the link in the description. There you can listen to The Great Gatsby Book Report in its entirety with more behind the scenes info and a Q&A session. Plus there are a ton of other rewards out there to unlock like bonus episodes, access to Kate's DM notes, early releases, and more opportunities to talk with the cast and other fans of the show. Tiers start as low as $2 a month And all that money goes right back into the show and helps us tell better stories for you, the listener. So again, go check it out, and thank you all for listening. You're listening to The Gorgon Show, a podcast about being a monster in a human world. I'm your host, Penny Cephalonia, and I'm a Gorgon. If I hiss something, do I get paid? Forbes, you are a snake. On my head, where would you even keep the money? 
I'm ready to introduce our very first guest. I, I am a Taraxippus, or a horse disturber. The Coroniaid are a, a race of magical beings that we can hear anything, any sound that is carried on the wind. I do consider monster kind of a pejorative term, so I, I would appreciate not being referred to that way. Don't give away your secret weakness mm. uh, that can kill you instantly. Vampires and werewolves, I'm sure, can attest. Really, generally a bad idea. Um, it's time to look into all of our futures. Hi, Sybil. And that's me. The Gorgon Show is a new podcast coming to your favorite podcast platform soon. From the Faustian Nonsense Network, my roommate Penny, lots of cryptid and monster guests, and me, the oracle who brings you horoscopes straight from the gods. That's The Gorgon Show, G-O-R-G-O-N. And right now, my visions tell me that those of you who check it out will have much better weeks than the rest of you. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Night has fallen, the moon is full, and we're inviting you to listen to Canada by Night, a podcast where professional improvisers play Vampire the Masquerade. Detective-turned-vampire Everett Fry accidentally becomes the sheriff of New Haven, an experimental town where they're testing if vampires and humans can coexist. Stuck leading a ragtag group of officers, the Bruja bounty hunter Val, the gangrel news reporter Evangeline, and the Tremere blood witch Doris, can Everett keep the town running? Or will everyone end up liquidated by the Vampire Council of Canada? Trending on global fiction charts and produced by Dum Dums and Dice, whose podcast Dum Dums and Dragons ranked number two of all fiction podcasts in America. Listen now to find out why Canada by Night has been downloaded more than a half a million times. Canada by Night, its interview with the vampire, if it had all the characters from Parks and Wreck in it. 